Hello, I'm Jensen Bueller. And I'm Quentin Wilson. And together we are the Two Enthusiast Podcast. Two Enthusiast Podcast. Tis the season to be brappy. <laughs> That's good. I like that. Yeah. Well, we just had a we just had yeah. a, a happy braps giving. Yeah. And um hopefully for your Kwanzaa you're getting a Honda. <laughs> I, I was, I was working, Honda, Honda for my Kwanzaa. I was, I was working on this before before the show. Could not figure out one for, for Hanukkah. I was hoping you'd help me out on that. Hmm. Yeah, that's gonna, it's tough. Yeah, not a lot of not a lot of rhyming with Hanukkah. Unless you can, unless you can pronounce the C and call it Chanukah. Chanukah. Yeah. What do you got for that? I don't know, but I'm it, pretty it, sure it, it would work out. To it. You'd have to listen to the Adam Sandler song. Oh, so good. It is good. That's gonna be the intro song for that, this show. That might that's, be. That's what this is gonna be. Yeah, sure. We were trying to figure that out before. I think we just found it. Uh, Quentin, haven't seen you in a week. Where you been, buddy? I have been in Brisbane. California, the bane of California. The bane of it is the bane of California. <laughs> Brisbane's not that bad. No, actually, I it's like kind it. Of, it's kind of industrial, but it's not that bad. Well, the, it's industrial on the on the bottom floor of the valley, but then it's really cute housing area that's not in the city, and mm-hmm. it's kind of quiet. It's like super sleepy. Really and, good uh, kiteboarding. What? Yeah. If oh, you and come across the the bay. San Mateo Bridge, huh? Right in there. Oh, I, you'll I don't, see them. I don't know anything about kiteboarding. I mean, I'd like to, but it's one of those things where I just. It's another thing to get into. Yeah, right? it looks like a broken collarbone to me. Yeah, or wrists, or I don't knees. Probably knees. No, I'm thinking upper body. Yeah, because you, you get the air. You do a lot of aerial. It's it's like it's like sailing. You know, when you hit the water, it's just like cement. You tumble, and like whatever hits the water first. Yeah, just gets grabbed and torqued. 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 Not, torqued. not torqued. Well, I could see it being torqued too. That'd be that's a different sport. <laughs> that's something. That's something else. I mean, you can get that in Brisbane too. It costs a little bit more. It's a little sketcheroo, but uh, it's definitely there. I don't, I don't know where you can find it in Brisbane. You're supposed to say Brisbane, by the way. So we got uh, schooled, uh, and and I you got to realize that we, as Americans, take liberties with city names or pronunciation in general, right? Willamette. Uh, but good old Danny Elvy. Uh, I'm going to say Elvy, but it's probably Elvy. I don't know. Elvis, he's uh, he's from somewhere in Australia. I haven't looked up deeply, but he said, "Hey guys, love your work." But is it, I'm wait, is this your Australian accent? No, no. <laughs> but I'm going to have to teach you how to pronounce the Australian cities if you're going to use them in your podcast. Well, to be sure, when we said Brisbane earlier, it wasn't it it wasn't the Australian city. It's the American city, right? Right. right. And we're gonna have to say Brisbane because I'm pretty sure everybody there calls it Brisbane instead of Brisbane, which is when you hear people say. Brisbane, uh, Australia, right? So he he has it spelled out phonetically. Brisbane, of course. Sydney is said C E D K N E Sydney 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 Sydney. Throw a shimp on the Bobby yeah. and Sydney. God, that's horrible. You're just as bad as me. Yeah. So Sydney said Sydney. How much of this is us mispronouncing things, and how much is this just Australians talking weird? That's what I'm saying. That's so, what I'm. That's what I'm saying. You, I've been I've been down under a few times. Whoa, you know what I'm saying. Whoa. I've been down under a few times. <laughs> from under. From under my ball. But from under. Hey, that's from under fromage. Yeah. By the way, <laughs> my petit fromage. <laughs> Don't that'll make way more sense. When we listen to the outtakes. Don't worry. That'll make way more sense in the outtakes. From under fromage. <laughs> Uh, but I've I've raced against a lot of Australians and and I've been down there a lot. 
you guys just talk weird. It's not that we're talking weird. You guys talk weird. Yeah, the pronunciation is there. Yeah, yeah. And so, I, and I'm I'm with you, but at the same time, let's. I'm going to try and be respectful. He also spelled no. out uh, Melbourne, Melbourne, as M E L B O U R N E. So Jason Bourne, Melbourne, right? Well, this is how we communicate. This is how we pronounce, and it's Melbourne. M-E-L-B-I-N is how he's pronounced. Fair enough. Yeah. And I've heard plenty of people say Melbourne, and I like saying that to Australians because it makes me seem uh, cultured, I guess. But uh, how can you how can you be cultured when talking about Australia? They're all think. criminals. <laughs> Let's just be really real about it. How can you be cultured talking about a penal colony, right? <laughs> you know what I mean? And I, I, they put the penal and penal colony down there. <laughs> I don't want to get penal about it, but. <laughs> so. That's no, fair play. That's good fair on play. you, Danny. I, I appreciate it. And we will start trying to say uh, Brisbane and Melbourne and Sydney. Uh, but I'm. And Bobby. And Barbie. And a, and a Joey. And yeah. a Sheila. Uh, Sheila. Ah, it's a Sheila. Oh, I have a great joke with sheila i don't think i can tell it now, we though. should get um we should get we should get rennie on the show and, and then that'll that'll say that the gentleman from cycle news yes absolutely love straight, to be, I'd straight love from to. us we should i think that would actually be really good uh so keep that in mind yeah um anyway good good on you danny thank you for uh trying to uh, educate us and thank you for listening to the show and putting it up with our annoying american accent yep and make sure to click all the links and click oh, all yeah. the ads oh, yeah. totally totally sign up for um and our uh, pro and our pro that's 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 a good spot because that makes me money so yep. thank you for that uh follow the show on facebook twitter instagram two enthusiasts uh you'll find it if you're listening to the show on itunes please 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 leave us a review and a rating it really helps uh the show rank higher in apple's upside down topsy-turvy search algorithm and helps other people find the show and all that goodness. Do you think goodness. if they rate and they say something like motorcycle in the comments? Yeah, totally say motorcycle in the comment. Just, just In fact, don't say anything else. Just say motorcycle, 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 cat jokes. <laughs> puns. Puns. Cat, yeah. cat, cat puns. Cat puns. Happy Thanksgiving. <laughs> That's how we want to be categorized. You know what I'm saying? It'd be perfect if you could do that. <laughs> uh positively okay <laughs> all right so uh let's <laughs> so, so meanwhile in brisbane <laughs> brisbane so i was in brisbane for the week uh uh being indoctrinated into the altimotors borg were you drinking the kool-aid or drinking from the fire hose i was drinking kool-aid from a fire hose <laughs> like it was i was getting the kool-aid from the marketing guys in a large amount and then i was getting oh my gosh we have a lot of work to do to um get these motorcycles out across the nation and people that are they're not going to be brapping they're going to be bzzzing and it's going to be a good time so yeah um that was awesome it was great to see what's going on there and get uh further into it you you, you could say you were taking the electric kool-aid acid test <laughs> yeah that's good yeah for sure yeah yeah yeah, yeah right. i'm on a roll today yeah that's good got fired up had a little Hawaiian food. I'm ready to go. Yeah, for sure, man. Was the pork? What is the pork called? Kalua pork. Kalua pork. That's right. Kalua pork and didn't, teriyaki. I didn't, I didn't care for the Kalua pork. You know, I love no, it. Chicken teriyaki. Yeah, both. I got half and half. It was delicious. Yeah, that was smart. That was smart. Got to mix it up. Next time it's going to be katsu pork. No, I don't like the katsu at all. I love it. So katsu pork and then teriyaki chicken. That's going to be the best. I think that's my personal balance. Spam masubi. That's where it's at. Well, for sure. And if you don't know podcast listeners to enthusiasts if you don't know spam masubi you might want to try it i i i don't i wouldn't necessarily recommend making it yourself but you can do it 
Yeah, it doesn't seem that hard. No, but you just gotta get the seaweed. I I think there's the thing there, and it really it's, the key is the rice, right? Trying well, yeah, to, I mean that's 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 Asian food in general. Like if you don't get absolutely. the rice right, you're just up a creek. Yep. All right. So Meanwhile, must be more motorcycles. More motorcycles. <laughs> this is this show's unless be you want to talk about John Glenn now. No, nah, we'll get to it. Okay. I, yeah, yeah, we'll get to it. All right. Well, we can talk about John Glenn now. No, no, we're no, gonna we go motorcycles. Let's, motorcycles? Let's, not, let's get them. Let's get them hooked on some motorcycles. That'll be like the intermission. Yeah, totally. Uh, so yeah, so you went down to Brisbane to get schooled on the the Altimotors gig, your new your new job. Which yep. was, this was, we're not going to try and talk about it too much, but this was, a, I guess, a formative week for you. So we should get it out of the way and, and move on with our lives. Oh, I had already said what I wanted to say, but if you want to oh. get into it more, sure. So what I, I... I guess I was just looking for your your impressions. My impression is that, like I said, we got a lot of work to do because it's still a small team and it's mostly now in the uh, manu- uh, design, engineering, manufacturing mode, right? So uh, there's a lot of people there that are functioning in that capacity as uh, uh, you know, build, building the bikes. But now there needs to be a blend into um, selling the bikes and then keeping care of them afterwards. And that's what I have been um, tasked to do is, is after sales. So I am going to be dealing with the bikes once they're in the field Um and making sure that they are taken care of well and that everybody's happy with them. So that's that. For me, though, in, in the in the beginning, there is no system set up. So I need to. I, what I'm tasked with doing is um, making sure that the warranty is set up okay. Um, that we have warranty pro, uh, procedures, protocols, and processes. I need to make sure that the um, uh, the the training is there. There's not a whole lot of training because the bikes are pretty simple, but there's enough training um, that it's of note because, frankly, it's a new thing, especially on the battery side, right? So um, you, you have to know how to keep care of these bikes, and the technicians need to know how to keep care of these bikes. And there's going to be a certain amount of diagnostic that's not wholly different than normal motorcycles, but there ain't no camshafts and crankshafts and con rods and pistons. So you have to look at the other parts that are making it go fast, which is the motor, uh, the motor controller, the inverter, and the battery pack. So that's that's what I've got to do is figure out how to get that out there and make sure that all of those components on all the bikes are rad. Yeah, we were talking about it at lunch about, you know, I think, um, you know, obviously you're going to have to get up to speed on the different electrical components. There's going to be, you know, it's still kind of like two wheels. So you got the bike. Yeah, suspension, sure. the wheels, the brakes, sure. those are going to be kind of common components you're used to. But in terms of learning almost a new vocabulary and what yeah. electric vehicles, the different battery chemistries, the different kinds of motors, and then how the inverters work. Like, like I think that's something that the industry as a whole is going to have to kind of go back to school and get educated on because we're such a, a mechanically inclined uh, pursuit. And now it's becoming more of an electrically inclined pursuit if that makes sense like like yeah. when i still hear like inverter i still think like top gun like we were inverted <laughs> you know like you kind of have to like like recalibrate right. like what your what yeah. your brain's you know associating sure and i think that that's going to be the i think the huge task for for dealerships and for like the salesmen of dealerships who are going to have to be selling these bikes whether it's alta or zero or victory or whomever because like not only do you have to be educated in that terminology but then you need to be able to impart that knowledge to the consumer that's coming through the door 
and say like, okay, well, you know, why is this bike with five kilowatt hours better than this bike that's got four kilowatt hours or vice versa and yep. being able to really kind of like stratify out the, the products because it's, it's a whole, it's a whole new ball game in a way. Sure. And for me, the motors are, are, I wouldn't say the most confusing, but what's what I've got to learn because there are so many different variants, right? The classic being a brushed DC motor, yeah. which is what you'd find most, most RC people car. know in most consumer grade things that take a, a small motor, say an electric drill, a lot of them for many years brushed DC motors, right? So like, like if you, um, I'm trying to think like a drill, I guess would be a good example. If you look at a drill and you, you hit the trigger and you see those little sparks, yep. that's the brush touching the the thing and, and yep. generating electricity sure. in the whole jam. And then those brushes need to be replaced because yep. they're literally rubbing on a commutator and that, I mean, they last a certain amount of time, but that's a, a, a failure mode component. Um, then you've got internal permanent magnet. Um, what the, what is in the Alta is a, um, oh my gosh, I've already, I, I, I heard it the other day, but I've already, I've already lost it. Um, it's permanent magnet synchronous motor. So PMSM, um, which is its own thing. And it's long and skinny instead of short and fat. Like the most of the motors that we were seeing in the SIS, the lightning, the Brahmos, they all kind of look like hamburgers. Yeah. This looks hot more dog. like a hot dog. Yeah. Right. And it fits in a really cool way into the frame. Uh, and there's there's two bulkheads. There's a front bulkhead and a rear bulkhead that make up the mainframe. And the motor fits into it. So it's not like you're bolting a motor to a frame. It It's in the frame, which cuts on down on components and uh, makes it lighter. It's really cool. Uh, and the motor is cooled by oil. And the inverter is cooled by uh, water, and the water runs to the frame. The frame is the heat exchanger. So the the forging of the frame is is basically the radiator. So that's really neat because you don't need a, a whole lot of thinned radiator. It's not creating that much heat. It's just enough to where it circulates through the motor or from from the inverter through the frame, and that's enough. So that's kind of a neat thing. There's so many different things that are cool, and I'm just digging into it now. So I got to get on the production line for a little bit and uh, had Jay and Vinny on the production line and Laurence from Belgium. Uh, she was showing me some of the components and how it's dealt with. God, there's just so many people there. It's so interesting and I'm very engaged. And I, I can't wait to dig in more. Yeah, I'm stoked for you. This is going to be cool. Super cool. What about you? What have you been up to? I don't know, man. It snowed here. You missed the snowpocalypse. I know. 2016. So bummed though. Every I've missed the last two snows, and all I want to do is drive my Mercedes Formatic in the snow. That's all I want to do. I want to see if it oh, if man. it if it adds up to the the Quattro that I had in the Q5 a couple years ago, which was so good. And I'm really curious. It but I have this a, feeling I'm going to end up. Show. I'm going to end up stacking that Mercedes into a curb. There's there's a lot of there's a lot of factors that go on here. So I live back east. I've been through some snows, and um, it's different out here. I mean. First of all, like we we kind of get the worst of it. Like I, I do have to give some credit for for the Pacific Northwest. It's not like back east where like it dumps like twelve feet of snow, the snow sticks around, and like it's this constant. Everybody thing. has to get used to it. Everyone gets there's systems in place. Not to, even, yeah, I mean not even that, but just like like here, like the the most dangerous weather you can get is a snow followed by immediately by a rain because that just creates layers of ice and and just no. Four wheel drive, all wheel drive, and even to most extent, snow tires really don't 
yep. do shit on ice. Ice is ice. And so that, and then, and then on top of that, the city is not prepared in terms of infrastructure for dealing with that. So we don't really have a lot of snow plows. We don't have a lot of de-icers. We don't use salt. We use the, the ash cinders, which are like the diet Coke of, you know, snow ice management. Yeah. And that's, that's only in this part of the state. They just started salting the I-5 through the Siskiyous, which is you the mountain range south. I mean, it's just, it's almost negligent if you don't, because it's so sketchy. The uh, issue is runoff, right? So the, the issue is runoff. It's, it's hard on vehicles. I definitely have a little rust on my forerunner because of it um, from back east, but it's hard. And then you stack on top of it, Pacific Northwest drivers who just don't know how to ri- drive in the rain. So then like you throw in snow and ice and it's just a total quagmire to them. Um, but it was, it was. It was treacherous out there. You, I don't. I, you say you missed it. I don't think you did. Okay, fair enough. If we if it had dumped like six inches, then yeah, like, then yeah. it'd be fun. But it's one. Yeah, okay. yeah. So I didn't get to do too much too much motor brapping. You got to do a bunch of asphalt and rubbering though. So I did a bunch of asphalt and rubbering. There, it's been a slow news week, but there's definitely some stuff to talk about. Uh, we were in the doldrums of the winter, which is no surprise. But some things came out on the racing side that I want to talk about. Uh, we saw some shakeups uh, at KTM that I want to talk about. We saw some some stuff from the AMA and Weir that I want to talk about. So yeah, I think we got a show, right? You know, we're only like you know, know fifteen minutes in or whatever. Dig we'll in. We'll start man. the show. Sure. Uh, first up, I think we got to talk about uh, the rule changes coming to World Superbike. Okay. Did, did you see those? A little bit. A little bit. I heard a little bit about it. You heard a little a little mumbling. So there's definitely, I think, a lot of opinion being expressed on the internet over this i think chaz davies takes the cake though you got to look up chaz davies response on instagram um i wonder if i, I can. saw it he was just really positive right well i mean chaz, this is first of all i like chaz's attitude just in general because it's just like whatever dude uh, i'm gonna have to deal with the same conditions that everyone else is let's yep. do it i'm put ready to go in. i'm uh, put me in coach i'm ready to play uh and i think that perspective from a racer is um just awesome like, and if you look on what he just posted today, this is um, Saturday, I believe. Yeah, all day. All day. It's the 10th. He posted up a video of his dog, which is a, a very cute French bulldog. That's one of those. Are you sure do- it's not a Boston Terrier? I'm pretty sure it's a French bulldog. <laughs> I don't know the difference between no, the two. No, well, they both look like they ran into a wall at high speed, <laughs> for sure. But this one's exceedingly cute, and it skateboards, you know, like those... those uh, other fat perversions of evolution that I think they're bull, they're some sort of bulldog, whatever the English bulldog, Ugh. like they're scary. I have some friends with them. They're, they're fascinating beings, but you know, they're cool. They're cool. They're cool animals. I've seen a few of my time, but sure. they are genetically perverse. Yeah. Like there's just things. Right. Uh, so anyway, he has his, his dogs uh, skateboarding and it's pretty rad and it just makes Chaz even radder that he has that going on. So check it out. Uh, yeah. And you should definitely check out Chaz's Instagram because uh, he has a very funny post about the the rules and how it's making World Superbike great again. Yeah. All right. Oh, that's right. <laughs> okay. So let's let's talk about the, the flip in the grid. So, flip so, the script and flip the grid. Yeah. So that's that's the big thing. That's the big kerfuffle is, is Superbike uh, is going to be changing the way it does the grid for race two. So race one will still be based off of qualifying. 
Um, but then race two will be based off of a mixture of the qualifying results and the race one race results. And the big thing here is that the top nine of the grid are getting quasi inverted. So they're, they're almost doing a top gun. They're doing more like a hot shots. Part um, but it, it's, it's kind of a weird thing. So this is going to be, this is gonna be tough radio, but we're going to try and get through it. So the they're doing a quasi reverse order so whoever wins race one is going to start ninth on the grid whoever comes in second is going to start eighth so basically the podium is going to be the third row of the grid in reverse order and the rows are going to be four or three or three four three it's always it's always three wide it's always three okay um the people who finish in fourth fifth and sixth will become this is written in race one in race two will become the front row of the grid in that order. So if you finish race one in fourth, you start at pole for race two. And then it trickles all the way through. Not ninth. No. Not no. if you should. If you win race one, you start ninth. Okay. And it goes in reverse. So then if you come in second in race one, you start eighth. If you come in third, you start seventh. But then it flips to um the 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 I don't even know how to describe it. It's so it's so weird. And this is why I think people are having a hard time wrapping their heads around it. It's a lot easier to explain with a graphic. Maybe I'll put one on the uh, two enthusiast page for, okay. for the sake of, of, of time. But the, the, the kicker is, is a few things are going on. So one, if you finish race one in third, you're going to start from seventh. But if you finish race one in fourth, you're going to start from pole. So there becomes this thing of like, do you really want to finish on the podium or is it better to finish off the podium in race two? And, and I think we, you and I will have to yeah. get to that in a second. The other thing that's interesting is I think it's important to bear in mind is the gap between the top nine and the top 10. And I think that's where Superbike really got this right. Because if you look at the top nine riders, and let's just kind of throw those out there for a second. I wrote them down. You're talking about uh, Davies, Jonathan Ray, Sylvain Guntoli, Tom Sykes, Nicky Hayden, uh, Javi Forez, Alex Lowe. Stefan Brottle. Well, he will be Stefan Brottle. Mark Vandermark. I mean, the top nine guys are definitely the factory teams that are a cut above i'd say the top 10 yeah and if you go back and you look through the race results there is a nice little half second step gap between the top nine and the top 10 so that's to say that the ninth guy is usually half a second faster a lap than the guy who's finishing behind him in 10th yeah so that's where this kind of cutoff is so i think it's kind of smart in that way because if you did a full reverse grid and you had the uh the race winner from race one starting at the back of the grid for race two when you look at the entire superbike grid there's almost like a three second gap between the lap yeah, times sure. so like it is it is a large large gap so making it just the top nine that are affected i don't think we're going to have any safety concerns with closing speeds and, and riders that are vastly different skill levels and, and equipment packages so the theory here is that hopefully that'll make race two more interesting and more of a reason to watch because there's going to be a lot of riders filtering through a lot more passing a lot more battles they must have seen a huge drop off in race two um you know watching i don't know how they would look at those metrics but yeah i mean that's always been the thing with superbike is you know and i think that was part of the reason they put race one on the saturday and race two on the sunday this season was they're trying to give it a little bit more difference because like let's be truthful like two years ago and onward or backward 
you know, when you run race one in the morning, you run, run race two in the afternoon, not much changes. You don't have a ton of time to really drastically change your bikes. You don't, you know, you have changing temperatures and weather conditions, but not really. It's still within a day's uh, span of time. Moving it to the Saturday, Sunday, at least gives it a little bit more variable. But I think they're just looking at like, hey, race two just feels like a carbon copy of race one. How can we make it interesting without abandoning the two race format, which I think is a cool format. So I know I'm not a racing purist, so I'm I'm just about like, you know, entertain me. This is the reason that I think, you know, ball and stick sports to some extent have an advantage over motorcycle racing. I would say truthfully, motorcycle racing is a spectator sports kind of boring, especially in person. I know that's like blasphemy, but that's just how I feel sometimes. As someone that like wants to be interested in it and is interested in it on a professional I level. Disagree with you completely. I it's think tough, about man. That depends on the track and some and, tracks are better than others. Yeah. Some races are better than others, but I would say like on the aggregate, dude, like there's definitely some races like I catch myself nodding off because it's just like like it's a Lorenzo and pole position situation. Well, Lorenzo's first through turn one. All right, well, this race is gonna be interesting. Not. Um, so I think Superbike's trying to mix it up a little bit. It'll be um I think there's going to be a lot of pushback, or we've definitely seen a lot of pushback from the purists. My colleague David Emmett, definitely being one of them, wrote a, an interesting uh, perspective on it, and is you know, and he's totally right in, in his views. It is kind of a perversion of the sport. It should be the fastest guys lining up, if that's your philosophy on how racing should be. If you view racing as more of entertainment, like I do, then you know I'm not as uh, opposed to it. Um, what we were going to get into was the. Uh, Oh, what was the thing I said we should sidebar? One of the issues with the grid. Oh, the oh the there is going to be a thing f- with the strategy versus finishing third or fourth in race oh, yeah. one. Sure. Um, so that's going to be. I not, think I think that is up for debate. And and you and I had kind of a conversation at lunch about it, but we should probably rehash it now. Yeah. the The main thing is, as you said, one in the hand is better than two in the bush. So. You get the first race done and win it no matter what. If you're third, you're third, not fourth. Just keep the third. You're going to get those points, right? That's more critical than to just get yourself in pole's position. For If it, if it was Formula One, uh, perhaps there might be a different story because it's so difficult to pass and so difficult to get a good start. Uh, and, and with formula one cars, cause they're two, 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 and it's just the cars are wide and whatnot and the motorcycle, just get a better start or make sure you get a demon start, stuff the shit out of them in the turn one. And you have a chance to go from, uh, from third and into first and prevent the person who's in first, who got fourth in the last race from doing well. I don't know. I think. I, I would not. Well, I would not, not risk at all going back a position just to make sure that I was. Well, it's two rows. I mean, the the debate there is that it's two rows back on the grid. So you're starting. So the the fourth place finisher is starting at pole, and you as the third place finisher would be starting at the seventh position, which is exactly behind them with a bike in between you. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I kind of get it from that perspective. Like that's that's a disadvantage for for finishing just one place off. But I also look at it like over the course of. 17 20 22 laps however it depends on the track over that many laps like i feel like it's gonna balance out eventually i agree i don't, I don't think we see the way these races go most of the time not every time in world superbikes pretty wild there can be pretty interesting changes between the two races that's one thing that i'm confused about because i guess we'd have to look at the data i haven't been paying really a lot of attention to world superbike over the past couple of years mainly because i'm 
I need a path of re- least resistance. I want to just click on my TV and see it. I don't want to have to worry about getting into whatever you name the, the thing I have to buy. Um, well, you so, can watch it on BN Sport. Yep, that, which so is that's fair. what I mean. I, or I, you can get the Superbike Pass. Sure, right. And yeah. I'm just not into it. And I'm I'm I I guess I'm I'm the burnout motorcycle industry person that's just not that bothered. But if I was, you know, one I can I'm trying to harken back to the days when I was an ardent fan and would go to World Superbike every year at Laguna Seca and paid more attention to Superbike than GP because uh, McDuin had had almost ruined GP because he was such a um, an overlord of it for so many years, which is what they're trying to prevent. Where when when he was winning every season over and over and over, it kind of got boring. We don't we don't want that any longer. Same went for Formula One when it was Vettel over and over and over. Or and then Schumacher when it was Schumacher over yeah. and over and over. You know, you get one team that has a good setup, and ah, it's tough to it's tough to beat them. In this case, Sykes. I don't know Sykes and Ray. I wouldn't call them overlords, but they were pretty good this season. I right? mean, Kawasaki is definitely dominating, but they're also spending the most money on it. Uh, the rule changes for next year, getting what, um, making it mandatory to use a battery and getting rid of the, uh, what do they call it? It's not a separated a separated throttle body. Um, Kawasaki was doing some really interesting things with their engine management where mid-corner they'd shut down two of the cylinders. Huh, I didn't know that. And then for a long time, Sykes has been using what they call the um, low inertia engine setup where basically they just they pulled out the generator. Yep, it was a total, sure. a total loss system. Yep. So they're getting rid of those kind of things, which Kawasaki's been able to use as one means of, of improving their package. But you know, I don't know how incremental that's going to be. You know, uh, and affecting can, the results, but you know, we're seeing good things from Ducati. We're seeing Yamaha come on board. We're seeing Aprilia next season is looking really good. Honda, I'll be curious to see how they come together. And we were talking about stuff on Brattle coming into the team, and I think that's going to be really good with him and Nikki. I think that's a strong package from a from a rider perspective. I'm still kind of dubious on the the, the mechanical uh, yeah package, but um, you know, time will tell. Interesting about the low inertia thing. I hadn't heard that. I mean, that's a normal superbike kit thing is to have a small stator and rotor that is physically small. Uh, you don't have to have a lot of energy to run the fuel injection system and the ignition because that's essentially, you know, and, and maybe the dashboard. Uh, so for years back when it was carbureted, you're only worrying about spark, total loss. You call it yeah. total loss. So right. basically, you hook a battery up to the bike. You know how long that bike will run. Uh, pumping fuel pump at a small amount, which most of them had fuel pumps that took it to the carbs from the tank. Some of them was gravity back in the day. And then just spark. And that's it. Or there wasn't a whole lot of electricity flowing through the thing. Maybe running the tachometer. So that was a common deal. You'd get a really small stator and rotor. And it was a kit part. Uh, with less windings and less drag because right. it's the, the, the magnet right. um, sp- spinning across the uh, coiled uh, copper is what's creating electricity, but it's creating drag. The tricks in that are um, removing it all together, right? So if you're skipper doodle club racer, you just decide to take it all the way off, throw on a bigger battery or more, a larger capacitor battery or just going straight battery and keeping two batteries um, and your pits at all times on charge just to make sure you could do it. This was a common deal. I did that with my 125 for a while. And we should point out that's that you're talking like 
nickel metal hydride. Yeah, this days. is lead acid stuff. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, well, yeah, it was lead acid. Yeah. I mean, before. There's no nickel metal hydride shit. Yeah. This is fucking. Now we're in lithium ion world where, like, you can do this on yeah, a battery totally. that weighs, you know, like Nothing. a quarter pound and yeah. is like the size of a pack of cigarettes. Right. So yeah, there's there's a lot of goods to that. The the trick people, though, were in the super sport and super stock realm that you learn um, how to. It, if a magnet takes a very, very large hit, it can sometimes demagnetize. Or if a magnet is uh, subjected to high heat for long right. periods of time, right. uh, it will demagnetize. Is that, is that degaussing? Gauss, G-A-U-S-S-E? Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know, but that might be... Is this Gauss? Oh, well, I mean, is it Brisbane or Brisbane? Right. Um, so that... Uh, that was just a, that's a, one of those tricks that not a lot of people um, talk about. It's a, but it's a good, I wouldn't even call it a cheat because in the rule books, generally, you'd have to be able to plug in any component that was on the bike in super stock or super sport racing, say 600 or thousands. You had to be able to plug in your left hand switch and it would have to be able to, uh, if, if you had a horn, it would have to honk the horn or if, if you t- uh, uh, t- turn the turn signals, it was activating that relay or whatever. Um, that was critical because a lot of people would have these kit wiring looms that were super expensive or bespoke wiring looms that, and you, you wanted, you were, they were trying to eliminate that from happening. So you, you had to be able to do that. Also, they'd check to see if the bike was charging. So, um, if it's not charging, then it would, uh, it would fail. But if you bake one of these rotors, uh, ever so slightly, in a specific way and you're smart enough about it, you can get it to charge. It'll charge. It'll, it'll pass the test, but holy crap, is it a lot less, um, it's a, it's a lot less drag on the motor if you have reduced its efficiency, uh, by, uh, heating up the magnet. So there's that. It's an interesting thing. And that, that was a, I wouldn't call it a cheat, but it was a bending of the rules that a lot of people did. And on my 125, I had a heavy, a heavy crankshaft. This is a two stroke, um, 125cc road race bike. So I had a heavy crankshaft, but no rotor on the outside. You're controlling where the mass is and you're making it so that it was better at the top end, better balanced at the top end, but then didn't have that extra drag of the rotor on the outside. And that was a trick thing that you can do as well. So you keep the mass. It was actually a high inertia, but it, it would still rev fast because it didn't have the uh, excess inertia of the of the stator. It was a weird. It was a weird balance, and you you have to find that, and that happens every often. So anyway, that's a, a side note on the superbike tech tech stuff. No, it's super interesting. Super superbike interesting. Super sp- yeah. Super sport interesting. Sport, super. It's a sporty. It's a super fuck. All right. So um uh the, if they're if they're trying to crack down on the expense, but that it seems a little bit like are you kidding me? But uh, you know I. I don't know how that rule affects other teams. When I saw it, I was just like, that's them trying to reel Kawasaki back in. Because truth be told, for the last few seasons, Kawasaki's been blowing blowing shit out of the water. And they should be because they're spending way more money than everyone else is. And they have two of the best riders in the world riding on their machines. So it doesn't surprise me that they're doing well, but I feel like that is the FIM and the Superbike Commission which is the little group that is composed of Why does it. it have to be little, Jensen? Do you have to call it little? Are you belittling them? There's like six people. It's it's not a lot. It's a little commission. It's a little Yeah, they're it's not a big commission. It's not like the <laughs> European commission. It's 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 little. Superbike. 
That's <laughs> all under Dorna's thumb, though, right? It's all under Dorna's thumb. And are they, do you think some of this is trying to dumb it down so that it's less awesome? Oh, that was one thing I was going to ask you about was recently there were some lap times at a test uh, where the superbike people were like way high. And then there'd be people scuttlebutting. Oh, well, they had qualifying tires and there weren't a bunch of the fast guys from MotoGP, but there were some legit quick people. Like I think Scott Redding was in there. I think the easiest way to, I think there's two things going on there. One, there's a huge diminishing return. That makes that's kind of a contradiction, but <laughs> just roll with it. There's a huge diminishing return on dollar spent versus performance gained, and we can see that between the three hundred thousand dollar super bikes versus the three million dollar MotoGP bikes. So for ten times the cost, you're getting fractions better performance. Yeah, right. Uh, the other thing too, though, two different sets of tires, two very different sets of tires. You have the Pirellis, which have a much wider. Uh, operating temperature than the michelins uh, you know you can go out and buy a pirelli slick that they use in world superbike it's the same pirelli slick that's available it's the super corsa race whatever i forget what they call their slick really tire. they're claiming that it's it's that's 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 part of the production class is that it has to be a production available tire okay um and then the other one is the fact that the michelins don't have that operating temperature they're super whammy special michelin tires and they were well outside their operating range and so i think you do get an element of especially at a track at hereth where there isn't very good grip especially in the cold was and that where they were was hereth right was okay so it just happened to be so i think it's really those, still we're talking they were it was close enough to be like i think on. i think that's the thing i think i think there are some some special circumstances that you absolutely have to take into consideration explains a lot of the differences we're seeing because look at the race times for both series at hereth and they're three seconds apart you know we don't see the same okay. little gap got it so that's where you start seeing the apples to apples kind of thing Whereas, but I think that people on the internet that are making a big kerfuffle about it are right in the sense where it's like super bikes aren't that much slower than GP bikes. Not really, not for the amount of money that we're spending. And this idea that super bike riders are a tier below GP riders is frankly quite bullshitty. Yeah. Uh, you know, Jonathan Ray, if he had come up through the GP ranks and was given the time to learn on a satellite team and, and given the factory equipment, Absolutely would be a, no a top level podium finishing race winning GP rider. Same goes with Tom Sykes. Same goes with Chaz Davies. Uh, we can see it with, with um, even when Nikki went back from um, ben Superbike. Spies. Superbike Remember when re- Ben Spees went and fucking Rick rolled the whole world Superbike paddock and then went to GP and he didn't quite. Hey, did, did I see that he's trying to make a comeback? That's such bullshit. First of all, first of all, that is all stemmed off of some little thing he put on, I believe, Instagram. It was either Instagram or Twitter where he was saying like, hey, you know, Suzuka, that'd be cool if I raced at Suzuka. Wink, wink. Let's be really clear. Ben Spees' shoulder is held together by wishes and dreams. Like he does not have the medical ability, the physical ability to race motorcycles anymore. And that was his big reason for retiring. Wasn't that he couldn't get a ride. Wasn't that he didn't want to do it anymore physically had too much damage done to his shoulder and he hit it for a season and then was finally like okay i'm done and and we don't have the technology he can't be rebuilt i think he's been rebuilt so many times you can't rebuild it anymore i'm sure he lives i'm sure he's going to live a fairly normal life i'm sure he's going to have arthritis when he's 35 but not diabetes not the diabetes (laughs) (laughs) doesn't get old does it (laughs) 
diabetes. <laughs> I, I could think of as the cat. There's one with the cat that looks like <laughs> Wilford Brimley. And I just keep the, the cat just looks at the camera and then you hear you think of diabetes. <laughs> and not uh, not to make fun of anybody that suffers from that, because it's an awful thing. No, so. as I as I snuck away mid show to grab my Mountain Dew. Oh, are you dude, kidding me? Like, you I'm, doing I am do. one more Mountain Dew away from the diabetes. Yeah, I'm sure, but you're more close to kidney stones. Oh no, 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 Mountain Dew doesn't give you kidney stones. <laughs> no, it doesn't have the phosphoric acid. Ah, okay. Yeah, the more you know. Cokes. Cokes. Cokes will mess you up. Uh, Dr. Pepper? Most brown sodas have phosphoric acid. God damn it. Because yeah. I love me some Dr. Pepper. You gotta switch to that sun kiss that's in the fridge. I like that too. Yeah, those are sweet. That's just like a sugar hit though. Not all of it. All of it's good. Yeah, sure. I'm all about the sugar. I'm sure drinks. there's vitamin C in there somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, right. Ben Spees. No, definitely not coming back. <laughs> definitely. Like... It would take a medical miracle for him to come back. And then But, but you're you're saying this like it's not like you talked to Ben or sorry, Mary anytime recently. So if you I mean he could have gotten like some like crazy secret operation in Singapore that we don't know about. But truth be told, he's been out of the game for how many years? Yeah. And there's newer, younger riders coming through. Yeah. I mean, could he do he, he, like a Kevin Schwantz one off at Suzuka? Yeah, maybe. But I think for me looking at that whole situation. It was some casual little joke he made on twi- on social media that, truthfully, the Italian press, which loves to sensationalize, and we are in the winter doldrums where there is no fucking motorcycle news, and they were like, mm, headline, sweet. Blow that shit up. Blow that shit up. Okay, well then, let's not, let's not give but it. But he is and, coming out, or what was it, HJC did just release, I think, his uh, And that's his probably the main helmet. thing, is HJC said, hey, let's get a little press, because... We, we had some bad press. Does Jorge Lorenzo even use his shit? No, he's on, he's on Shark now. Right, because he had that had to have been a big hit because his foggy fucking HJCs were causing him failures. And you know what? And I don't even or think- it was his tears that were cut, right? And for somehow, some way, they, they gave him some Visine or something to dry out his tears. Truthfully, I think, I think that <laughs> to talk about that, like in seriousness, there's a couple things going on. One of them is there is a carousel of people in her, Lorenzo's support group that are like a revolving door. And so I don't think he's had steady, uh, a steady entourage around him that are the ones that are responsible for his racing career. So, you know, you got Rossi's got Uchio and he's got his other dudes around him too. And Max, Max, right. And Mateo. And, you know, he's got his people and it's a steady crew. And, you know, there's there's a lot of consistency there. And I don't think Lorenzo has that consistency. And I think you do have to factor that in a little bit um the other part of it too i think hjc as a company did not realize how important trackside support is like you go to a motor gp round there is a container uh a shipping container for Arai and a shipping container for ajv and they have like and, and a shipping container for alpine stars and a shipping showy. container for dynasty yeah. and showy and they have their staff there to make repairs to make sure everything's good and get it all ready and if something gets damaged they can replace it or fix it or whatever they need to do and it's the same thing where i just don't think hjc understood or placed value in how much rider support plays a role in that and i don't think people were taking care of a shit if the helmet liner comes out mid-race whoever was handling that helmet that's their fault if a visor fogs up mid race, you know, if you don't have like a pin lock in there, if you don't have a special guard, I mean, maybe some of that comes down to the helmet design and the way it flows and all that, but there's things you can do to minimize fogging that are well within the realms of trackside support. So if those things happen, 
I don't even put that necessarily at the like HJC, what are they Korean or the Japanese? Korean. I believe they're Korean. Yeah. So I don't put that as HJC Korea's problem. I put that at HJC MotoGP's problem. And I don't really, I don't really see HJC people in the GP paddock when I'm there. So I, I don't, I don't want to say like there's no one there, but they certainly don't have the presence that Arai and AJV and Shoei are doing at the Grand Prix level. And I think it bit them in the ass. I think it was a very public gaffe and it cost them the contract with one of the top riders in the world. So, and Ben kept on though, probably because there's just a, it's a distinct lack of tears. <laughs> I think money plays a huge part I, of that I too. I'm, I'm kidding, but you know. I'd like to think that Ben isn't crying his helmet as much as Lorenzo is. <laughs> no, but his engines were popping a lot more. Yeah, that's true. Holy shit, his swing arm was breaking. Dude, oh my God, bad really, things were happening. I really want to hear. There is, there is a story in his last season, and I don't know what it is. And Not I, in his last season, but the season before the season Yamaha. Before, you're right, you're right. Sorry, you're right. Because he was on the Ducati for Ducati. a while trying, right? He was at Pranic, yeah. Uh, that last season with Yamaha, there is a story that has not been told that I think will be very interesting to hear one day. I don't know what it is. I'm, I'm just speculating. Yeah, it has to but be. But there's too many yep. things there. Way too many. For it just to be coincidence. Yep. And there's too many things around that for those not to have affected it. So one day we'll we'll, we'll hear about it. Um, maybe. I hear he's a tough person to write an autobiography for, though. So maybe maybe we won't. Yep. Um, are we, we, I think we're good on that. We, I think we covered Superbike. Covered. Covered. S- scattered, smothered, and covered. Like my Waffle House hash browns. <laughs> oh, that's a plug. Maybe I should, we're going to have to call it Waffle House. Waffle House? Yeah. Are they local? That, no. That's like nationwide. No, they're not. Unfortunately, the, the furthest west, there's one in Denver and there's one in Phoenix. It's a bummer because I, I do like Waffle House. I we don't have say. Waffle, we have Waffle House here, don't we? Nope. No, uh, there might be a crack horror barrel here somewhere, but I hate that. It's just, that's horrible. Waffle House is the shit. If I told you about Cracker Barrel, is like responsible for pretty much all of our legal precedent on slip and fall cases. <laughs> I figured they were just responsible for all the diabetes. Diabetes. <laughs> no, not too many diabetes. <laughs> Truthfully, like truth be told, it's slip and fall and, um, Discrimination and discrimination at restaurants. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> wow. It's, I mean, maybe this is my surprised face. Maybe the, the discrimination not so surprising, but the trip and fall. Yeah. I mean, they are like the the, the cornerstone case of like the, like I forget what it was. Like some drinks got spilled or some food got spilled, and it got left there for like two three hours. Like just didn't clean it up. Middle of the restaurant didn't clean it up. Old lady comes walking by, just slips on her ass, breaks a hip. And then that's that's why we have the giant yellow cones that say, you know, ah, really? warning and all that. And like there's, you know, you have to like immediately clean up the spill, sure. quarantine it yeah, off. And they're definitely slick of it all. Um, just going to gloss that one right over. Just because fuck you. <laughs> uh, you know what? I didn't miss you that much this last week. That's for sure. What's that? I didn't I didn't miss you that much. Oh, no. Okay. No, yeah. Right. I had like normal conversations with normal people that didn't involve like. I went on a date once with a girl, though, who the entire time pitched me business ideas that were based off puns. Yeah? And I, I can't remember any of them because I immediately repressed the entire date. Dude. But, but she would have been your soulmate, I think. Let's get in contact with, with this person just so I could maybe... Just, they- just, 
All right, uh, maybe I like identify with off, them well. You could just be like two black holes just like converging onto each other, just just sucking the energy and life and nothing escapes. Maybe from. we could go on a date to Crackhor Barrel. Right? Let's see how it goes. Yeah. I don't right? know. <laughs> She's mopped the one for me. <laughs> trying, to, trying to ring out the every last bit of that. Uh, Just tell me when you're ready. I am ready. Let's go. <laughs> uh, so we're going to see a new uh, president at KTM North America. Okay, so who's leaving? Because Jean Eric, <laughs> Jean Eric Burleson. Burleson? Yeah. Was this? Uh, uh, was he American? Doesn't sound so much, John Eric. John Eric. Um, I'm not quite sure what John Eric's. Uh, How long has he been there? He's been there a long time. I don't want to like. I don't have the number in front of me, but for as long as I've been in the industry, he's been the dude. Like 20 years, let's say. Wow. 10, 20 years. Wow. Something like that. Okay. Uh, he's the dude. Long enough to be stale at KTM. He's the dude. Um, and taking over is going to be John Hins. 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 Sounds very Austrian or German. Um, but I think they're all American. Oh, really? Um, so yeah, John, John Hens has been a 20 year veteran of the motorcycle industry. He spent the last 10 years at KTM. Uh, oh, so he's in, he's in the family. He, he started at Yamaha and came over to KTM. Okay. Cool. Rose through the ranks. Um, dirt bikey person, or do we even know? You know, I, I, I don't know too much. It matters nowadays though. It because does matter. And my understanding is. I don't know what his proclivities are, his two-wheel proclivities. Oh, I like uh, them. Oh, such a good word. That's a good word, right? Yeah, it is uh, a good word. Yeah. It's all the words today. Um, my understanding is him coming on board, though, does signal a, a pivot by KTM to focus more on its on-road products, yeah. especially in the North American market. And this was something that was really interesting. I was reading through their, their financials. The U.S. market, or the North American market, I should say, is like a quarter of KTM's revenues. And when you think about how kind of effed up KTM North America is at times, especially in terms of focusing on, you know, being such a dirt bike specific brand yeah, here, sure, sure. Uh, you know, like there is such a huge opportunity for them in the street market. And then on the top of it, just in the North American market, like how long it takes bikes that are debuting in Europe to get to here? Like how long did it take the KTM 390 Duke to get here? How long did it take the KTM the RC? R, man. When the, the RC8 took fucking forever. Well, first of all, it came out. I'm going to get my dates a little fuzzy here. It debuted as a concept in 2005. It came out as a production bike. And I think they made 50 of them in 2008. It was a proper production bike in 2009, but didn't fucking come to the US until like 2013. And by then was fucking obsolete. An amazing bike. A great bike. Really cool. I love the KTM RC8. Yeah. The 1190 RC8 was a great bike, but it was like three or five years late to the party. Sure. Uh, so that, you know, things like that just kind of crush me sometimes. Well, and uh, so the, what I remember from this, from from watching KTM and KTM dealers over the past let's just say five to 10 years was when they started to ramp up hard on the street side and late two thousands. So they were like, we're making these super Dukes. We're making this 1190 or a 990 and 950 adventure. Right. They wanted to focus on it more. They knew they were going to be doing that. And they hired a bunch of people. Uh, a friend of mine was one of them. Then, um, I can't remember who it was, but somebody started doing real well in Supercross after Dungy. Yeah, once Dungy, and I, I think that was eleven, twelve, thirteen, something like that. But by that time, 
So it wasn't like it correlated exactly, but they were they tried and then they kind of softened because dirt was their thing or the economy tanked. Oh, that would be it. So the, once the economy tanked, I think they had to tighten up. Then they didn't let the street side burgeon. And then they were just about to ramp that back up again. And then Dungy started winning Supercrosses and holy shit. Then it was just like floodgates open. It's time to sell more dirt bikes because KTM had already had a, uh, I'd say a corner on the off-road market. Like, like frankly, old guys, gray hairs, money. And there was the joke. They were just like, they were just like Ducati for road where it's older people with money so that you get a lot of people making fun of them because they were just spending a lot of money to to look cool or whatever, even though really their products have always been really good off-road, really good, like not just kind of good. It's like Ducati. Eh, when they're not breaking down and being fucked up, they're really good. The The products are amazing. They'll, <laughs> Other they'll, than that, Ms. Lincoln, what well, do you think of the motorcycle? <laughs> but they'll go fast, right? You get on a bike no, for and, sure. and you for go sure. fast. And the same with KTM. You get on them and they go fast. Yeah, they've had fuck ups here and there a couple bikes with some engine problems or something like that but generally it's pretty good right you, there's the jokes uh kick till monday or um what is the kentucky best? trail monkey well kentucky trail monkey is just funny but i think it's uh something keep the money or oh my god i'm gonna forget it it's one of the best ones i'm gonna have to talk about it later on we're gonna have to cut that one out it's K- ktm not keep the money Fuck, that's killing me. Can't talk motorcycles. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Can't talk motorcycles. Um, so they, uh, uh, the, because they have those those sets of people, it was tougher to break into the to the youth because of the expense. And now they're at that kind of stage where they have to. I think I think it would be interesting to see you drill down. Perhaps this is an ANR Pro article of how much money you can make. Like, look, try and find KTM sales and look at profit margins. And look at how much they could profit off of a, say, a 1290 Super Enduro. And if they put marketing budget behind the 1290 and the 1190 and all the all the other things that they make that are fifteen to twenty thousand mm-hmm. dollars, if they sold you know X amount more of those compared to I don't know K, the KTM 65s for the kids or something like that, how many KTM 65s or 250s or 350s do they have to sell to make up for the profit margin of selling just even one? Uh, big street bike unit, and that might be what they're looking at. They're saying, "Hey, right now we have opportunity that's missing. We've got the 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 dirt bike market on lockdown, but we need to we need to work on the street bikes." I know a large KTM entity in the Los Angeles area that basically only sells the road stuff, and they're fairly new to it. And they, I mean, the 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 people in their area, if it's a 450 Supercross bike, they'll buy it. Other than that, they just want the road. And and that's what they need to focus on is some of those dealers can do that where they can say, you know what, I could give a crap about these small yeah. dirt bikes. I'm not going to sell them. There's there's a Harley Buell yeah, part of almost. this. Where, where, almost. And I think this is this is the, the issue of KTM under John Eric's reign where it's been so focused in the U.S. as a dirt bike brand that the dealer network is focused on. They're, they're dirt bike dealers. Yeah, absolutely. And that was that was one of the issues like when the RC8 came out because that was, I mean, they'd had the Duke before that, but the RC8 was like the first, like, this is a street bike. Yeah. And, Pure. you know, when you have like that sitting next to a 450 motocross bike or a 250 enduro and like the rest of the dealership is ATVs and quads and dirt bikes and maybe snowmobiles, yep. it doesn't make any fucking sense. So, you know, there is that element of like, well, now you'll, you know, like it's the same thing with Harley and Bealwood. So like Harley Davidson, it's like, okay, so we got all these cruisers and now I'm going to stick this like weird sport bike right next to this Dynaglide and 
like the customers coming in through the doors are just not the same for for a lot of these dealerships. And I think it's the same. It's the same issue. And it definitely worked. Uh, say in this, I've talked about it on the podcast before. I remember because I went to KTM Gresham wanting to buy an RC8 back in 2007 or eight. Like I, I was hot about it because yeah. I've been around Ducatis enough to be. Eh, I, I don't. 1098 is great, but the, everybody has one of those. I wanted this weird looking thing and they were just barely even there right they could barely even talk about it so then i just lost interest and the, and, well the main thing that like, made me lose interest was the price it was stupid at the time it was like 20 grand yeah. right so that was stupid but then and they still I, and they still have that issue because you go out and look at a super duke a super duke a 1290 super duke r msrp is like 18 grand it's way overpriced yeah now granted dealerships are unloading them for like 13 or whatever something obnoxious yeah but that's not right that does nobody any favors that's race to the bottom shit the dealer's not making the money the manufacturer's just barely gonna get they're not gonna order enough in the, the next year Yeah, but if the bike sits on your floor for two years what are you gonna do it's horrible i know that's what i'm saying it's it's not good it's race to the bottom shit they have to get that they have to get their yeah. shit together i will be very curious to see how they handle this problem because i think I think there's an opportunity there where you could say, you could split the franchise and say, okay, so this dealership, this dirt bike dealership, you can be our KTM dirt bike guy. And maybe this other dealership can be our KTM street bike guy. But truthfully, you want a KTM dealership to be able to service all KTM yeah, bikes. Sure. So they're going to have to have a come to Jesus on that. I don't know how they're going to deal with it. And that's probably going to be um, John Hens's marching orders going forward is how, how to fix that problem. I think because it's dealer by dealer. You get the big one in LA that's mostly street. And you say, hey, our dealer rules are set up to have it this way. We're going to have to change these dealer agreement rules to say, if your market is mostly street and you're not going to sell the smaller dirt bikes, then yeah, you're going to have to take a few of these dirt bikes because that's what we do. This is our core competency. But if you're selling mostly street bikes, then we're going to tailor it to you. And and that takes good regional repping and it takes good systems at the home office to be able to sort the wheat from the shaft and figure that out. So if you have the KTM out here in Gresham, Oregon, that is... Which is no longer in business. Is what? KTM Gresham is gone. Yeah, but there's another... So I was going to say like tonight, actually, KTM CC... Yeah, CCKTM, KTM, CC, CCKTM, CCKTM, CC, which is a a well-known coffee shop. uh, The proprietor of the One Motorcycle Show um, uh, is there. There's a a group of people who are owners, as far as I know, but the main person is uh, is Tor Drake, and he is building a uh, uh, he has built a motorcycle shop for KTM right now. It's just KTM. So so there are grand openings tonight. We're actually going to head there right after this podcast. So I'll, that'll be actually a question I'll have to I'll have to poke around on uh, tonight and but see. But they what, see being what in get. the core of the city in a, in a core urban area, which I think is smart. Absolutely, they're gonna they're gonna be able to take the uh, street side and do well with it. Whereas the Gresham shop, which is still an extant thing, they're still a dealership. It's just not KTM of Gresham. It's I forget what the name of the place is, but they're they're good people. They bought the dealership from the KTM people when they decided to go. There are multiple brands, uh, and then there's the other one that's out. It's called Motosport in Hillsboro, and they're just a big box. So yeah. Maybe you'd go out there and buy it. I'm not really sure. Then we have another place that's way south of here that is that is uh, oh, oh, selling bikes cheaply, I'll say, uh, whatever brand that they have. And it's probably an hour south of here, and it's diluting the market. And it's horrible for KTM because you have stuff like that going on. So they have to really tighten their dealer network up to make sure that that type of stuff doesn't happen. Or they need to stop overloading dealers with product or 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 do better forecasting and that's something that all the manufacturers are having to do right now ducati triumph ktm all of them have to look a little bit more seriously about how they're pumping dealers full of stuff because right now it is just a free-for-all race to the bottom seller's market 
It is, or sorry, buyer's market. You, if you want to buy a motorcycle right now, you are, you're, you're in a throne position. You should be able to go whatever you, wherever you want, and buy something really cheap. I wrote that story. Now is a great time to buy a new motorcycle. Oh, dude, it's I mean, huge. I was focusing more on the finance side of it, but it is, it is a buyer's market. Like Absolutely. you talk about the high, the housing cycles and all that. Buyer's market, seller's market. Same thing in motorcycling. We've got a buyer's market. It's been a buyer's market for the last three, four years, and it's going to continue to be so. For at least another year or two. Yeah. Uh, we are at least at the point now where we're starting to see new product. That's why it makes this time so much better than, say, like two, three years ago, where we weren't seeing a lot of new product. Yeah. We weren't seeing manufacturers coming out with a lot of new stuff. It was mostly bold new graphics. Well, now we're seeing, you know, even even Suzuki's got some new bikes. It's getting crazy. Yeah, with it, right. You know, so uh, interesting times. Uh, uh, last topic of conversation before we wrap up the podcast. I want to talk about the AMA sanctioning Wira. Right on. You, you saw that announcement, yeah. Yep. You got any, got any thoughts on Not, it? Well, so Weera <laughs> you, You're looking at me. Well, like, oh, that, was, that was my prompt, Quentin. Come on. Right, no. Dance, it's, monkey, dance. It's uh, Weera is Western Eastern Racing Weera, uh, uh, Association, I think. They've been around for a very, very long time. Extremely long time. They're mostly East Coast. Like when I was growing up, they were the East Coast yeah. mostly racing yeah. organization that was huge so it was a club racing thing but a little bit higher level so you would get a lot of it was endurance racing and i knew it really well because they would come to texas world speedway which is where i grew up and that's where i i cut my teeth watching motorcycle racing was when they would come and they would do four hour six hour endurance races um and those people that were racing in that were often in cycle news magazine and often uh, road racing world. Yeah, absolutely. So you'd see yeah. a lot of the products that they used and the sponsorship dollars that were going towards them. You would base your purchases a, a lot off of what these people wore as gear or used as, you know, Yoshimura pipes and, and AGV leathers or whatever, that type of stuff. That was a big no, deal. No Dustin pipes though. No Dustin pipes. No. Oh my gosh. Dustin. Dustin um, pipes. So I, I, there that we had actually kind of a, it, it was, powerful in that way back at that time very, well yeah i mean even when i was coming up through track right it was a very large amateur racing organization much larger than cmra or afm sure. or omra and Wormra. it was mostly southeast and i can't remember where they went whether it was virginia or road atlanta shoot vir wasn't even around at the time that they were they were popular summit point and Oh, Summit Point. Yeah. Wow. What, whatever. whatever I've been there the, a couple times. And I'm yeah. sure there's places in Florida, Daytona, whatever they were doing. I don't even know if they were like at the, the race of champions in October. I'm not sure. I, I wish I, I could speak to it a little bit better, but they were they were a big entity. Then they started doing some West Coast stuff. And I, I it was kind of also always also, also ran stuff because Willow Springs, WSMC, was the spot for Southern California. And it yeah. stretched through... If you were south Arizona. of San Francisco, yeah, yeah, you had you had to be a WSMC racer. And now I feel like Chuck Wall is kind of taking that over. It is for sure because yeah. once Bill Huth uh, dismantled WSMC in whatever bizarre, I don't I don't know his old it's age adult brain of yeah. his that he decided to stop or whatever. So WSMC unfortunately is gone, and that's very sad. But that there were one race racing series, one track racing series, much like Omer is. Um, where you get a bunch of specialists and they're usually only good at that track and it takes a lot for them to break out and do good at other tracks because Willow is nine turns, super fast, 
high momentum track. It takes scares a, the shit out of me. It, it, it's gnarly, and it, but it has a very specific skill set that you can apply to most other places. If somebody can go fast at Willow, they can usually go fast anywhere else, but it takes a bit more for them to learn the scrappy skill set it takes to go to, say, Sears Point or Mid-Ohio or VIR or Road Atlanta. But you don't have to worry about them being scared to go into turn one at full tuck or turn eight at full tuck, turn which eight. we're, Jesus. I mean, we're talking 160 mile an hour corn. Really no gnarly. joke. No joke. Really gnarly. Like, like so Willow is, you have to have a reverence for that place, right? But Weira wouldn't go there or they only went there for the 24 hour, two years in a row. I think it was 99, 2000. I was there for that. That was cool. But they're not, they didn't have the series lockdown to do Thunder Hill and Willow and I don't know, Arroyo Seco. There's a bunch of ones in the West, but they're not enough to, there's too far to travel. Whereas in the East, you're on the, especially mid-Atlantic, there's a bunch of those tracks that you can get to pretty easily. That's right right where I was. That's right where I was in Pennsylvania. And you could, a four hour radius would get you at least a dozen tracks. Which is really cool. Which is, yeah. I mean, that, and that's totally, if you want to do like a weekend of riding, that's totally doable. Yep. And at the same time, the big ones were like LLRS or LRRS, the Loudon. That was its own thing. That was like the super bunch of specialists. And there were always some hall asters coming out of that place because it was a scrappy, gnarly, dangerous track that created people that had the scrap. We were, uh, had a, it was just big and, and a lot of people were in it. And I think the message board was always big and it was one of those <laughs> you have to stay away from just because it was, board can be trouble. so yeah, we were uh, getting, uh, so the question is, what is the, what is the thing here? Is AMA trying to make a feeder so, series for motor? Yeah, America? it's, you know, I think, I think part of it is, is kind of AMA giving its little, you know, Pope cross to, to Weera. Because, you know, they're like, oh, well, now we all have, you know, we're riders love access to AMA sanctioned insurance or AMA improved insurance. And these races will be AMA sanctioned. And I guess that means AMA riders can go race in Wira and it kind of doesn't screw up their licensing thing. I mean, I don't really know what the take home at the end of the day is. There was a problem for many years. We discussed this earlier where. Uh, if we were was racing and I think they might've been at say California speedway and this has been about 10 years ago. And, uh, one of our racers, when I was at graves, wanted to go race there with their practice bike, just to go get some practice, do some laps, right? Yeah. Just get some laps down. It's, it's usually a situation just dusting off the pipes, dusting pipes. They would go out, ride for most of the race and then pull off and not get into somebody's championship. But it was an, an opportunity for him to just go get some good track time. And you'd take a bike out there and it would have to be so much more gnarly or prepped, unfortunately, because AMA, there's an assumption that you know what you're doing and that you don't have to uh, safety wire a bunch of stuff. But we were, uh, oh my gosh, everything under the sun at the time, you'd have to safety wiring like brake caliper, like the, the bolts that go through the banjos on the brake lines, like overkill shit that maybe if you were flying an airplane would be necessary, but not for... Uh, motorcycle racing, right? Because so you're talking about the rules, basically. Yeah, it was. It was. That, I don't. See, I don't think that's what's going on here. No, you don't think so. Okay, I don't so think that's so. What I'd I mean, just. I mean, the, the press release doesn't say a lot, and I'll just. I'll just read a paragraph from it, and this is the only paragraph that seems salient to what this actually means. And it says, "Is it salient or germane?" I think it's both. Okay, right on. No, just just making sure we're both smart here. Are we? Are we both smart? You're fucking up my flow. That's all I know. <laughs> All right, read your prayer. I already had a week, a week of fucked up chi. Now you're fucking up my flow on the weekend. Are you kidding me? No, we got to throw GTA, some uh, GTFO. Uh, intellectual arrogance, man. That's what we're all about here at the I'm, Two Enthusiasts Podcast. I'm, I fly coach, man. I'm, I'm a person of the people. I, you know, I just did myself. It was really comfortable. 
I got an aisle, <laughs> you, aisle seat. We got last. on Alaska. Yeah. yeah. Uh, no, I was on United. Oh, well, then was, you were yeah. a person of the people. Yeah, I was. Oh, All right, go ahead. I didn't, Paragraph. Where? Do you know when United still flew planes? <laughs> it's just like it's a stork. It's just a big ass bird that just waddles up to the terminal. <laughs> <laughs> you just get on the back and like just hold on to some feathers. Sounds kind of fun. <laughs> yeah, until you get to thirty thousand feet. Have you ever? Do you remember the uh, the video game Joust? Yeah, that was one of my. And you're on the Griffin. Favorite. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, I love Joust. That and game will always be a ski lodge game for me. I I only played that game when I was a kid at a ski lodge. That's how white privileged I am. <sighs> yeah. Wow. I I'll, let me. I'll give you a little bit of white privilege on my side. My dad had purchased an Atari Twenty Six Hundred that was set up to take a cartridge that had an EEPROM on it, and and <laughs> it was one of my dad's buddies because they were heavily into uh, computers, uh, right? So this yeah. was, I think, somebody that was involved in computer science at Texas A and Let's be really fair. You can't say they were heavily into computers. You had to say they were heavily into some nerdy ass shit. Yeah, right. You so, you went past like I'm a nerd into computers. You went to like like Dungeons and Dragons master yeah, bullshit. Sure. So this is early 80s and it was somebody from the computer science department at Texas A&M had done this where you put the EEPROM on, on the EEPROM and you'd switch the EEPROMs, which, you know, they're fiddly little things. Those of us I who... I think you need to describe what an EEPROM is for our listeners. It looks I like think, a caterpillar. Think, it looks like an inch-long caterpillar and all, of the, all these little connections that go into it are easily bendable and if you had to change the map on a Ducati 916, a Ducati 748, an Aprilia Miele, uh, a Ducati ST2, an MV, uh, no, sorry, not MV Augusta, a um, uh, Moto Guzzi, uh, Sport 1100, there's there, that era of ECU, you would take an EEPROM out and put another one in, and it might have a piggyback, or it might you might have a, a what do they call it an acorn program to be able to reprogram what was inside the map that that was inside of it. So those were it was strange to go from early '80s where I had to do this as a kid, take an EEPROM out and put another EEPROM in, and each EEPROM had like 30 games on it, all pirated, and one of them was Joust. So that was my white privilege, right? Was the fact that I had access in one mm. fell swoop. I could just take the EEPROM out, put another one in, or I think my dad would never let me do it because I would totally fuck it up. So he would have to do it, and I wanted to play Balderdash and then instead of playing playing Joust, and then I would do that, or if I wanted to play, uh, you know, whatever, the top speed car game or, you know what I mean, something like that. So yeah, oh um, Joust. Pinnacle wow, that was a that was not a rabbit hole. That, that was is a, like if you're not drunk by the end of that on the two enthusiasts drinking game, I don't know. <laughs> it makes me want to play just and then you know what? Down at Ground Control, there's a, a rad video game place down in downtown uh, Portland mm. called Ground Control, mm -hmm. and they have joust. Mm -hmm. You know, twenty five cents, order mm. a beer, mm. and they have little cup holders right next to the mm -hmm. thing, and you mm -hmm. can put your beer down and mm -hmm. play joust, and it's mm -hmm. super rad. And you watch the ostriches hit each other and the mm -hmm. eggs pop out. It's really funny now, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Oh, God, mm -hmm. it's so good. Mm -hmm. All right, so mm -hmm. back to the weirder paragraph. Meanwhile, mm -hmm. <laughs> this, this salient paragraph. Yeah, that's germane to our conversation. It says, with this partnership, Weirer has access to AMA-approved insurance, AMA ratification and recognition of results, and the opportunity to develop a clear path to professional licensing for these riders who aspire to race in Moto America, the home of America Superbike Championship. So makes sense to me. You know, like I don't really know what the benefit is, truthfully, but it does seem like it is we're getting the nod and them trying to set up Weira as maybe a feeder series for Moto America, which I, I don't know how Weira wasn't that already, and how you know, truthfully, AMM or CMRA or 
Omer or any of these other racing leagues aren't feeder series from Moto America. It's not like... Yeah, they all are to some extent. To some extent, if, right? If this is going to be the biggest one. And again, yeah. I'd have to see where they're racing. I haven't paid attention in a while, right? I haven't gotten a Road Racing well, World you know, magazine in 10 years, And that's kind of the thing. Like, where was a... I mean, where was a... I wouldn't say it was the 800-pound gorilla, but they were like a 400-pound gorilla 10, 20 years ago. Yeah, sure. And I feel now that isn't as much of the case. Not to not to put Weir down, but I do feel like the series has lost some of its veneer. And maybe some of that comes from just the fact that of, you know, the struggles of American road racing. Maybe not, yeah. might not even be a Weir issue. It might be a, Mer- a but motorcycle But do you pay issue. enough attention to it to really be like, I seriously can't comment on it because you know, I haven't been paying enough attention to it. It's tough. Like, like from, from where I sit, I usually can recognize the names of like the top two or three guys from each amateur series. Sure. But outside, like I couldn't tell you what results they're getting. I couldn't. I don't follow it. It's hard enough getting excited about Moto America, let alone to get excited about amateur racing. Yeah. So yeah. You know, hey, I'm very pragmatic. Pragmatic at the end of the day. So if this helps, where riders get into professional road racing, go from amateur to professional, and to get the teams and sponsorships and experience that they need to to further their career, I'm all for it. I don't really get what's going on here. I don't, I don't get the, what we would call the with them. What's in it for me, but <laughs> if it works for them, more power to them. Okay. Um, and that's all I got to say about that. Okay. Did I, you want to, um, dig into John Glenn before? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so before we end the show, I just want to recognize the fact that we lost a truly remarkable man this week. Uh, John Glenn passed away. He went into space twice. He was the first American to, uh, travel around the earth to orbit the earth in the mercury program and he went up in the space shuttle program and was one of the i think he's the oldest uh man in space because of that 77 years old um so so truly inspiring uh for me i mean i was definitely one of those kids that like always wanted to go to space camp and was always looking at um the stars just to be like metaphorical about it or whatever but but there is this idea and i think it started with you know, the idea, the idea that John F. Kennedy sent out on why we want to go to the moon and it created the word moonshot, which I think is one of the best words in the English language, because it's this idea of doing something that is difficult, doing something that is extraordinary and taking a risk in doing so. And I think John Glenn is a huge part of that moonshot uh, idea, this idea that we're going to reach for something that is so difficult and so dangerous and so hard and inspire others along the way to doing it. Like I definitely have inspiration from people like John Glenn and other people that have come through the, um, the astronaut program one, because I kind of want to be an astronaut, but two, like as an entrepreneur, it's kind of that same kind of feeling of like, I need to explore and I need to create and I need to do something that is different and difficult compared to the set path. So um, if you see, if you go to Asphalt and Rubber this week and you see the little rocket ship logo, that's, that's for John because huh. uh, he's definitely, he's definitely a reason the, uh, the site is there today. Right on. I would, I had no idea. I, w- I was wondering why you were, where the, where the tie in is. Yeah. No, I think it, it's funny because I just, I just discovered a, uh, a series on Netflix that I think was done by the BBC that's talking about the space program and how it started uh, post-World War II, um, truthfully not Nazi scientists that were making the V1, V2 rockets, yeah, sure. bringing their technology to the Soviet Union and to the United States. And then, 
you know, it gets intertwined with the nuclear program, but it also gets entwined with the space program. And the space program comes from, there's a military aggressive side to it, but sure. I think there's also an exploration side of it. And that's always where I think NASA was trying to stay was in the exploration side of it, even though maybe there was some spinoff and some ancillary and corollary things that were coming from the defense department. But, you know, some of my the most interesting stories and most favorite, in fact, um, Alan Shepard and Deke Slayton wrote a really interesting book called Moonshot, which just outlines kind of the the start of the American uh, space agencies and, and 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 programs, and and takes us all the way through. And there's some really interesting stories along the way. One of them's about John Glenn, and the other one that really touches me is the Apollo One story. And I don't know. I don't know how familiar you are with the Apollo program. I don't. Not enough to be able to know which one was which. So right? Apollo what was one. Yeah. So Apollo one, obviously, the first one uh, was a failure, and it was a it was a huge failure. So they were testing the. Uh, well, they weren't testing it. They were getting ready for launch. They were ten minutes out on uh, launching Apollo one, and at this time, the the capsule they were working in a pure oxygen environment. And you know, super long, hyper dangerous, hyper hyper dangerous. And there's there's long story short, it it went completely south, and the capsule ignited, and the astronauts uh, ended up just engulfed in, in fire. And the way they like, it's not just like fire, like you and I know it. Like the fire was so hot, like the metal handles on the doors would just melt off. And uh, it was a huge pivotal moment for the American space program because it it taught us a lot about safety, and it taught us a lot about. Um, process it, it, it there were so many things that went wrong with apollo one before this even happened that it should have been a warning sign and it wasn't and i think it took us a huge pause to realize like what we were doing in terms of the great leaps we're trying to make to get to the moon first and and maybe some of the sacrifices we're making along the way so um really interesting story you know the mercury program's really interesting gemini um even looking at the some of the, the space shuttle missions, obviously Challenger is something that uh, I remember watching live on TV, which was really hard. Um, but all the way through to to the ISS, I think there's some really great stories that come out of the space program that that are inspiring. And if you're someone that's you know kind of like me, that's a little bit entrepreneurial minded, that that tries to think bigger than they are, I think it's there's some good allegories there. I will say that there the there was a film that was made that I. And it's, uh, the, I, I uh, was always impressed by, it was a good story. It was called October Sky. Yeah. Um, that's recommended movie just in reference to space program awesomeness, right? Kids from a cold town. And I think it's one of the Virginias. Um, uh, and it's, uh, it's, there's West Virginia and East Virginia. No, there's just Virginia, West Virginia and, and West Virginia. Virginia. Right. Okay. Well, I say, I was almost sounded right. Cause I was like, there's no East Virginia. Why am I saying Virginia's? <laughs> um, anyways, good story. One interesting factoid is that if you look up the name Quentin Wilson, that's one of the only other times you see it commonly is one of the kids that was the, one of the rocket boys from October sky was there then in real life was named Quentin Wilson. Yeah. So if you ever see that with if yeah, that's a thing that my name wasn't that just very strange but it's not that strange because wilson's pretty common name, right? not. quentin's sure. quentin not so much of a common name yeah no but yeah here enough. we are um so yeah so so thank you colonel for everything you did for us right on the only problem with all that is the um space shuttle no mm. kickstand i see where you're going with that no kickstand yeah now yeah 
Maybe if it's when it's on its on its ass as it's poked up in the air, you could that whole thing is kickstand. That, that whole platform. It's the like, platform. That's like the ultimate kickstand. The launch pad is the that ultimate is, kickstand. That is that is the ultimate stand of kick. <laughs> All right, it just kicks you into space. <laughs> Kickstands up. Good talk. See you out there. Got your phone off. I'm just trying to. Beep beep beep. I can totally hear you clicking. I know. That's why I was like, I should. Try and figure out how to. French? The French. The French make the best tech now. They make the best few things. There are a few things that the French do that nobody else yeah, we can. Yeah, can't, we can't tell them that, that though. Like, no. Goes, yeah. Don't admit it. Souffle. Excellent. Fromage. Fromage. Le petit they have. Fromage. Ma petit fromage. <laughs> they oh. have the fromage down. Oh, my petit fromage. You fromage are so stinky. Ambiance. Oh, I want to put you in my stinky mouth. Oh. <laughs> And drink you with my stinky wine. Oh, I can't remember which one of the French. There was a French intern. We had a few of them. Alain, Adrian. Ah, oh, I'm forgetting the one. I have to look him up. Anyway, he was all about the the fromage ambiance. It was the joke was that we were using French words and fromage ambiance. Oh, the fromage ambiance. Me, oui. My petit papillon. What is a papillon? It's a butterfly. Oh. A little butterfly. Petit papillon. <laughs> a petit papillon. <laughs> you have to like whisper it at the end though. Papillon. Papillon. <laughs> Are you ready?